Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of One Man Watchpoint and Overwatch podcast, where we talk about everything going on in the wonderful world of Overwatch. If this is your first episode, I'm your host, Sir Dr. JM. You can find me on all socials, but most importantly, find me on Twitter and reach out to me there if you'd like to contribute to the show, interact with me, ask questions, anything of that ilk. You can, of course, find this podcast over on all your favorite podcast services out there, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. So give us a follow, leave us a review, tell your friends, and all that fun stuff. Now, for today's show, uh, we are officially back in the swing of things. The Overwatch League is back for Season 4, and we are now doing weekly episodes where we had previously been doing uh, bi-weekly. So we've got a short week's worth of news to cover, but then, of course, we've got the past week's matches in the Overwatch League to look at. And we've also got the upcoming week's matches to take a look at. And, of course, we actually have a new segment that I'm adding to the show in between those two. But we'll get to that a little bit later on. So, before we dive into the news, let's move on over to a required reading. Playtime's over. So, for this week... Uh, I am throwing in our recurring but not regular segment, Required Reading, because there's a nice little article over on GG Recon posted by uh, one of my favorite uh, industry analysts, Yiska. And the article starts off like this. Was Striker's boost allowed? Staffers on the confusion around the owl rules. The whistle blows and the referee raises their arm to indicate a foul play as the audience audibly fights over the subje subjectivity of the decision. Play continues, altered by the decision of a few. The above doesn't happen a lot in esports. For the most part, whether or not something was permissible or not is decided by gameplay engines, most often judging consistently amongst competitors with few exceptions. Only occasionally during extraordinary circumstances is human judgment required to decide what is fair and what isn't. Of course, not everything is so easily decided by algorithms. If a team significantly delays a game start, it is upon the referee to make a call in accordance with the rules of competition that have been laid out prior to the game. In the rarest of cases, the judgment call has to be made about gameplay-related issues. After all, the vast majority of plays that are possible to do within the engine are permitted, with exceptions of obvious bug abuses that hurt competitive integrity being the outlier. When a certain line within the rules is crossed, the referee steps in and stops the action, serves adequate punishment, and facilitates a solution that allows play to commence. Often in video games, the possibilities are so complex and the field is so unexplored that occasionally we run into edge cases where it isn't so clearly black and white, but rather a gray area of what goes and what doesn't. In cases with precedent of be prior behavior, it will be taken into account. So when Stryker manned the upper arch in his team's game against the Houston Outlaws at a close match score in which every fight counts, having being boosted up there by a Maywall, a lot of staff in the Overwatch League weren't sure if what they were seeing was actually a permissible play. To jump to the conclusion, GG Recon has reached out to the Overwatch League and has confirmed that Stryker's play is permitted, though no clear reason as to why was given. So that's the introduction to Yiska's article here. Um... This, of course, is relating back to uh, one of week's, week one's matches where the San Francisco Shock played the Houston Outlaws. I believe that was week one. I'm just double-checking. 
Double checking. Yep, there we go. Uh, that was the Sunday of week one, where, of course, Houston managed to beat the reigning champions, the San Francisco Shock, um, by a score of 3-2. And that play, uh, although maybe not the deciding factor in the game, ultimately, um, was definitely an interesting one. And in the moment, a, a very hype moment, um, really exciting to see, and a, a huge play by uh, the San Francisco Shock to really take advantage of that kind of boost up onto the arch um, that Yiska mentioned there. And they've actually, if you go seek out this article, he's actually got a tweet embedded from the Overwatch League themselves uh, with a video clip of uh, the play that Yiska is talking about. And it's actually right after that section that I, that introduction that I read to the article. Um, so anyways, I wanted to bring this one up because it is a discussion, in my opinion, that is worth having and very interesting. Um, as Yiska points out there, abusing sort of bugs in the game, albeit... Uh, more geometry-based ones in this case, where, where you know, Striker and the team took advantage of the overall geometry of the map, not necessarily a bug like, um, I, I don't know, uh, something, something that's more obviously not meant to be in the game, is, of course, technically, by the rules of the league, not allowed. So the point in this whole article that Yiska has uh, written here and obviously has researched quite a bit um, is to point out that Technically, this play is not allowed. Now, the the obvious comparison point, again, when we compare to traditional sports or meat sports, if you will, is the fact that, yes, not all uh, disallowed calls or or maybe sort of edge calls where it could be disallowed depending on the, the viewpoint of a ref or, or the judgment of a ref. Uh, obviously, in traditional sports, not everything gets called. So maybe this is a case where it's a similar situation to that. Um, the the fact simply being, you know, the referees could have yes stopped the stopped the play or called a I don't know a dismissal or I don't know called a reset of the round or something strange like that. Um, but we typically don't see that kind of thing, um, you know, unless it is a very egregious uh, ab abuse of the game or the system in some way. You don't typically see the refs stepping into uh, an esports game or match in that way. So. Anyways, Yiska goes into this article um, with that setup of what is and isn't allowed. And then go check out this article because he actually does some research. He actually reaches out to people in the league. He has a few unnamed sources um, that do speak to him and that say, yeah, this is kind of a gray area. Um, and the funny thing about all of this, and I think part of uh, what probably prompted him to do some of this research is the fact that uh, shortly after Blizzard released a patch and there was a line in there saying, fixed a bug that allowed Maze Ice Wall to reach unintended locations. Fixed a bug that allowed players to stand on a doorway ledge. So it seems pretty obvious that the, uh, the developers are now patching this out and likely this will not be a, uh, an option anymore. So kind of calls into question, you know, okay, if you've now basically highlighted the fact that, yes, this was in fact not intended um, and likely therefore not allowed, but ultimately they're not going to take um, uh, reactive, well, not reactive, uh, they're not going to take uh, action against what has already occurred in the, the league and the games and everything. They're not going to make them replay one round just to try and decide uh, 
you know, what happens ultimately in that match. So anyways, go read this article because like I said, Yiska talked to some insiders. Um, they actually reached out to a number of, of uh, organization staff with different organizations throughout the league. And they actually had them sort of rate certain things. So one of the examples here, um, Gigi Recon asked to rate uh, how sure the participants were when judging which map position was going to be permitted by the league from a score of 1 to 10, with 1 marking the lowest possible certainty and 10 as the highest. The average turned out to be 4.1, with the median sitting at 5 out of 10 points. Map positions in Overwatch League remain largely an unsolved puzzle with presupposed forgiveness from its rule makers. So it's really interesting because they actually use kind of scales like that. I think from the sounds of it, it seems like GG Recon and Yiska did a good job of uh, not so much trying to sway people or, or give their opinion on this. It sounds like they more approached it from a standpoint of simply, was this allowed? You know, what is your position as a as another organization? Um, and you know what? I mean, who knows? Maybe they did reach out to the Shock and the Houston Outlaws, who may be a little bit biased in these situations. But I digress. Go check out this article because uh, it's a fun read and, and, and it's thought-provoking, right? Which is something that I think a lot of the time, um, you know, there isn't there aren't really questions like this. We don't really see this kind of thing. Um, and that's largely because we don't really see people uh, or players at a professional level taking advantage of things like this um, because maybe the rules are a lot more clear or the abuses and bugs in this sense are a lot less egregious. Um, you know, now, now that I'm thinking about it, a specific example comes to mind that I'll I'll give here from my personal experience. And now this is going to date me a little bit. However, I remember back in the days of uh, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, the original, which came out back in, uh, let's just find out, uh, 2007. Um, in the online multiplayer, there were, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the, the map uh, name, but there were a couple maps, actually I think one of them was Crash, where... Uh, you could actually use a RPG boost glitch to get into certain sections of the map that weren't actual sections of the map. You were basically outside of the geometry of the map. You could free roam there, um, or you were sort of placed in a higher position where you were not viewable from the actual map, so therefore hidden from most players, but you had a clear view of most of the map and even through some walls and things like that and you could just fire and fire on at will and, and annihilate people that way and i'm i'm not going to admit to having done it personally however me and my friends definitely uh did it personally and anyways those are obvious uh bugs and glitches that yeah if someone tried that at a professional level you would get banned and disqualified immediately your team would probably be penalized whereas something like this you know, you're still kind of skirting that line of, is this allowed? Is this not allowed? Um, you know, you're, you could argue you're just taking advantage of the strategies that, uh, you know, your team is aware of and can employ. Um, so anyways, go check out this article. I like it a lot. Um, I like the conversation that it provokes. And actually, Yiska tweeted at uh, one point during the match after this happened about the you know, air quotes, legality of it in a match. And I actually replied to him and, and I said, so what are potential consequences of this? It's not like, you know, not saying I believe that a team should be penalized for it. I was just curious, what are the potential ramif ramifications of this action? 
and I actually had someone reply to me uh, because I, I think I suggested, you know, could the shock be disqualified from this match? Could there be whatever fines or something like that? And I had someone reply to me and be like, fines for what? For a sick play or something like that? And I was just like, come on, bro. Obviously, that's not what I'm looking for. I was I was curious if an industry insider might know a little more about what could potentially result from this. Now, maybe at the time Yiska knew, maybe he didn't. He didn't reply to my tweet. But obviously, this article uh, shows that uh, he was thinking on it and uh, stewing a little bit. So anyways, go give it a read. That's over on GG Recon. It reads, was Striker's boost allowed? Staffers on the confusion around the owl rules. And it was posted by Sasha Yiska Heinish. So there you have it. Now, without any more delay, we're going to move on to the news segment of this show. Oh, uh, we have to get this thing moving again. All right, now that we are on to the news, we're going to jump on over to Dexerto.com with an article posted by Michael Gwilliam on April 19th that reads, Overwatch League lets fans vote on which hero gets a legendary skin next. Season 4 of the Overwatch League kicked off on April 16th to much fanfare and some tremendously enjoyable matches. Combined with the fact that Owl token drops can now be earned just by watching directly on YouTube, and the result was a massive increase in viewership. Those tokens, of course, can be used to purchase special Owl skins and certain emotes, but in the future, players can earn special hero skins just for watching. Now, Blizzard is letting fans vote on which hero will be the first up to receive a new legendary skin. They then have a tweet embedded from the Overwatch League on April 19th that reads, Vote now, win later. Thanks to Overwatch League perks by at T-Mobile. If you watch four hours of May Melee, you will receive an exclusive owl skin. Vote below for which skin you want to see become available. And a couple arrows. And the four options, or the four choices, were Winston, Zarya, May, and Anna. And it looks like, now that this uh, poll is long since closed, 42,335 votes. And the final result was Anna with 46.5% of the votes. So the article continues, the four options available to players are Winston, Zarya, May, and Anna. So far, Anna is by far the favorite with over 40% of the votes, while Winston is a distant second with 27%. Zarya is barely ahead of May with 17.8% to the Ice Queen's mere 10.4%. Now that was obviously at the time of writing this article. Voting for which hero you want to receive a special skin is very simple. All you need to do is log into Twitter and vote on the Owl's poll. Alternatively, you can vote on the Overwatch League's website, but be warned, you only have two days to vote. How to unlock the May Melee skin. Regardless of what hero ends up receiving the most votes, the method for unlocking the skin will remain the same. Fans just need to watch four hours of the May Melee tournament, which begins on May 7th. Just be sure to have your YouTube and Blizzard accounts linked, and you'll be good to go. It should be noted, however, that you may need to stay up a bit late or wake up early to watch the event, depending on your time zones. The tournament will feature the two best Owl teams in the West traveling to Hawaii to face off against the two best teams in the East in a double elimination bracket. The Overwatch League plans on doing three more of these tournaments throughout the season, so even if your beloved hero doesn't secure enough votes this time around, there's always a chance they will win uh, They will when the next event rolls around. So there you go. They've got a couple pictures of these skins, um, or maybe not of these skins, but of skins that appear to be owl-related. Uh, They've got that kind of gr dark gray, light gray with the uh, metallic orange, um, and they show Winston, Reinhardt, Lucio, and Genji. However, 
I don't think those will be the skins. They they do highlight that this will these will be legendary skins, which could just simply be the fact that or be because of the fact that you have to earn them sort of outside of the game. They do take a little more. It's a special currency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, I certainly hope they're a little more fancy than that because if I get a an honest skin that is just gray, I mean, if that's if that's the option, I'm probably just not going to bother with it at all. At all. Um, and to be to that same effect, we have seen skins similar to that where um, Overwatch contenders, uh, Overwatch League, sorry, contenders uh, offered a similar reward for for hours watched and everything like that i think i actually did get the genji one which is that sort of light gray dark gray and a, a, a vibrant lime green uh obviously to highlight contenders so um i kind of hope for a little bit more than that however i kind of suspect we're not really going to see that i do suspect it's going to be very similar to uh to those skins so i digress uh exciting nonetheless to have the interaction and the fan input on this it also says to me that these are the four that they have chosen, and therefore these are probably the four that we will see uh, in upcoming tournaments as well. You know, if if Ana gets the skin this time around, I'm guessing the, uh, whatever it is, the June Joust, the June Jam, the June Jingle, Jangle. Uh, the, it is the June Joust. Okay, I was correct. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if the june joust reward will simply be the next skin or they'll have a vote again uh i would assume winston will win that one because he's you know ahead of zarya and may by a relatively significant amount albeit not nearly as significant as anna is ahead why everyone is so high on anna i don't truly understand you know she's definitely uh one of my favorite support characters uh to play and to watch and she's definitely a vital part of any team but ultimately, I'm just like, come on, guys. Like, Winston, Winston's the best. Winston's the bomb. Winston's the logo of this podcast. So come on. Let's get Winston up there. Moving on from there. Our next article will take us over to everyone's favorite Liz Richardson on DottieSports.com on April 22nd. And here we've got a breakdown of the latest live patch. So it reads, Tanks Baptiste targeted in Overwatch's latest live patch. Overwatch's current meta overwhelmingly relies on the ability of teams to press forward with no fear bolstered by the deep health reserves of tanks and healing output of supports. Developers have apparently had enough of this meta and have moved uh, to dial back the, quote, rush composition in Overwatch's April 22nd live update. Most of the proposed changes from the April 15th experimental card have made it through to live servers, including massive changes to Baptiste's immortality field, as well as reductions to Reinhardt's armor ratio. Echo, a top pick for players who like to take to the skies, also got a huge nerf to her duplicate ability. Duplicate ability, I should say. All of these changes are currently live on all platforms of Overwatch, including PC, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. We then go on to outline the changes. So I will... Yeah, there's not too many here. I'll probably go through all of them, um, talk a little bit about each one. Tank hero changes. Diva, call mech damage increased from 50 to 250. Developers claim this change was made because D.Va is often, quote, intentionally delayed by the enemy team, but all of us know it's just because they loved the 600 damage call mech ability from the April Fool's experimental card. So let's dissect this one just a touch. Now, I actually think this is this this was probably one of the more hilarious changes to make it into that experimental card uh, or experimental tournament that they did. Um, obviously, you know, 600 damage from call mech is insane and literally enough to crush if I'm not mistaken, just about any hero, uh, including tank heroes, or bring them down almost 
to uh, no health, so they can basically get one hit by other uh, damage heroes. However, obviously 50 to 250 is not nearly as significant as that, but it is enough to take out uh, many DPS players and many support characters. So it certainly is drastic. Now, the other side of that, uh, and it's also hilarious, as I mentioned, um, the other side of that, though, which... I hadn't truly considered until I heard the opinion of most of the uh, uh, Plat Chat hosts when I listened to episode whatever number they're on of Plat Chat um, today. The other fact was that, you know what, I'm going to pull it up here. Episode 84 of Plat Chat. Um, the fact that I hadn't truly considered is that this should really never come into play. Um, if you have a diva who is demacked, and she is in the middle of sort of a massive, massive brawl. Uh, at the Overwatch League level, you sh th that that baby diva should be going down very quickly and very easily. I will be truly shocked if we see a kill by that mech call down, and it's not something uh, completely ridiculous. Or, or I don't even I don't even have a good situation when this would happen. Um, and I think Avast was actually the one to point out on on Plat Chat that this this is almost never going to happen, and it doesn't really change anything um, at the level the Overwatch League is played. Uh, you know, D.Va being intentionally delayed by the enemy team. Yes, that's true. That is how teams uh, stagger um, stagger teams when they're when they are respawning and everything like that. Um, you know, if the D.Va is is the last one standing, teams then burst her down into Baby D.Va, and then Baby D.Va does such such a small amount of damage that the opposing team can kind of just chase her, keep her alive. You know, uh, do whatever they want. Um, so that they can then kill her, which uh, causes her respawn timer to be way off from the rest of the team, causing the rest of the team to have to wait for her to respawn before they can mount another charge, um, in case you aren't familiar with the term stagger. So anyways, that's all very interesting, but in most cases, that's happening, and the, the baby diva, certainly, there's, there's no way the baby diva is able to farm enough to get her call mech back down before the team crushes her. And ultimately, even if she has the chance to hit that key and call down the mech, there's a really good chance that the team is just going to burst her down so quickly that it's not going to matter. Uh, the mech is going to hit, and yeah, it would technically hit the ground and do that damage if someone were standing on top of her, but the, the pros just... I mean, at this point, they're not going to be that close. They're going to be taking her out so easily. It's going to be a Reinhardt or something standing right there to smack her down. It's just not going to matter. So I don't know that this truly solves anything. Um, however, uh, I do think it was maybe Johnny, maybe Reinforce that mentioned it on Plat Chat, where he said he is excited to see when this happens uh, because it will be quite hilarious and, you know, uh, subject to mocking when a player gets caught off guard by this. So... You know, that's my opinion on it. Uh, I think it's hilarious, but again, we're probably never really going to see this. And if we do, it'll, it'll, I think it'll be likely that the player who does it or gets hit by it will know exactly what they were doing, right? It's not going to be a surprise. Whereas in lower, lower levels, gold, silver, bronze, that kind of thing. Yeah, you might actually get lucky and, and get a significant kill with this. But truly at the Overwatch League level, this should not make an impact, so. 
Moving on from there, Orisa, halt cooldown reduced from 8 to 6 seconds. Uh, I don't truly think that halt really needed a, uh, a buff in this sense. Uh, it kind of seems like the developers are trying to push a double shield meta again, which in my opinion is the most boring meta. Um, I really truly hated uh, when we saw Sigma the Sigma Orisa meta uh, towards the end of, I want to say, Season 3... Uh, once we switched over, no, not season three, season two. Once uh, Sigma was out and things switched over to a two-two-two roll lock, got away from goats, um, and maybe yeah. Uh, so, anyways, maybe start of season three as well. We saw a lot of Orisa Sigma, if I'm recalling that correctly. Anyways, I digress. Orisa um, is quite boring to watch, uh, although, and I mean, ultimately quite easy to understand. But I don't want to see Orisa Sigma come back. I'm actually really enjoying the Reinhardt Sigmas that we're seeing just a little bit now. I'm also enjoying the double bubble that we're seeing with uh, Winston and Zarya being played on the tanks. Um, plus a lot of the more dive-centric metas that we're seeing with uh, with D.Va heavily featured. Um, plus a little bit of, you know, Reinhardt, a little bit of Sigma. Uh, so yeah, that's my thoughts on that. Orisa, not too much to talk about there. Uh, and then on the other side of that, though, as I mentioned, uh, seems like the developers are trying to push a shield meta in some way. Uh, however, again, a, a double shield meta even. However, again, they are reducing the effectiveness of Reinhardt armor reduced from 250 to 200. Health slash armor total reduced from 550 to 500. So um, Liz Richardson then writes here, uh, in top level competitive play, the over like the Overwatch League, Reinhardt is now a must-pick choice in rush compositions that rely on his strength and high health. This minor armor nerf will be a huge pain for Reinhardt players as they can now be mowed down more quick quickly by projectiles and beams from enemies. Um, so that's uh, the other meta that I forgot to mention was the rush compositions that we are seeing as well, um, especially with teams like, if I recall correctly, Atlanta, um, really taking advantage of that. So again, it makes me sad to see this because... Uh, I I just feel like this screams we are we are shifting back to a shield meta where Reinhardt's not going to be effective, where a lot of dive comps probably aren't going to be too effective. So we're probably going to see less Winston. We're probably going to see less uh, less Diva to an extent as well, and uh, it just pains me because I actually have really been enjoying the. In a lot of ways, the lack of a meta we've been seeing, but also the characters that we have been seeing played to sort of form that meta. So I digress. Moving on from there, Roadhog damage per projectile, primary and secondary fire, increased from 6 to 6.6, 6, uh, kind of tuning up Ryan, uh, Roadhog, sorry, but again, I just don't really see uh, this changing too much with Roadhog. Moving on from there, damage heroes, Sombra, stealth movement speed bonus increased from 50 to 60%. So simply giving her a slightly, uh, slightly faster movement while she is invisible, um, or where she is while she is stealthed. Uh, nothing too exciting there. Um, so yeah, that's it. Echo. Moving on. Echo is one of the more interesting ones. When duplicate ends, Echo will return to the health value she had prior to activating the ability, or to 100 health, whichever is higher. Sometimes pros and top players have good ideas. Developers have borrowed and tweaked this change from the experimental card tournament in which a panel of experienced Overwatch players and streamers suggested alterations to the game. They suggested that Echo leave her ultimate duplicate with half health instead of returning to full health and a free life, air quotes. 
Instead, Echo will now return to her previous health value or 100 health, bracket half of Echo's full HP, whichever is higher. This will encourage Echo players to be more mindful about using their ultimate in the middle of dangerous team fights. So this one's actually quite interesting uh, because previously when Echo would, uh, would use Duplicate, she would, you know, copy whoever she was targeted uh, for that duration that Duplicate lasts or until she was defeated as that character. She would then go back up to full health. So as they mentioned here, or as Liz mentioned here, essentially giving her a, quote, free life. This ability to me very much screamed, uh, I, I don't know why this is where this is, I don't know why this is where my mind goes, but this screams like a, an RPG ability. Uh, it reminds me of Kingdom Hearts 1, honestly, where you could use certain abilities for the simple fact of you were invincible while using them. So when fighting a character like Sephiroth, for example, um, you were invincible and you would outlast some of his more devastating moves. Or you could also use certain abilities that, in doing that, would restore you to full health from whatever you were at previously. So um, that's that's why it reminds me of that. But anyways, this is an interesting one because this does make it so that players will have to be more thoughtful about when they're using their um, uh, uh, their duplicate ability. Um, Echo will now return to her previous health value. So if she is, yes, less than 100 health, you can pop that ult, which will give you the duplicate ability, and then once you are, you know, cancelled out of that, you'll come back not with full health, but with 100 health. Uh, alternatively, if you are higher than that, you will get back that health value, but it could be, you know, 101 kind of thing. So anyways, that's an interesting one. Moving on from there, I'm going to jump one here. I'm going to read Moira's first, because Moira's is not that interesting. Biotic orb cooldown reduced from 10 to 8 seconds. So... Moira, in large part, is not being played too, too often, although we did see her occasionally. Uh, I'm trying to think who we saw playing her. I know it was on Ilios, but I can't quite picture it right this second. Um, but Moira has really not been in the meta. Uh, characters like Baptiste and Brigitte are definitely being played quite a bit more. Um, and so this might be the developers trying to bring her a little more in line with them. However, I don't think we're going to see too much from her still. But moving on from there, we have the Baptiste changes. Now this is where things get interesting. So Baptiste, healing projectile explosion reduced from 60 to 50 health. So that's interesting. Slightly less uh, health given from Baptiste's alternate fire, which obviously dishes out the healing to his team. Healing projectile direct impact now restores an additional 20 health. So again, that's an interesting one. I actually like that one a lot. I think that makes sense and and should have always been the way it was if baptiste fires one of his projectiles and it is a direct hit on a teammate it gives them 20 additional health it will the explosion will also give uh teammates nearby 50 health um as i just mentioned on that previous point so that makes sense but here's the really interesting one immortality field now protects teammates to a minimum health threshold of 10 percent maximum health down from 20 percent so Liz writes, ever since Baptiste was introduced to the game, players have been complaining about the overwhelming power of Immortality Field and how it can ruin a team fight. Developers have finally heeded their calls and halved the amount of remaining health allies will be left with after the field fades. This turns Immortality Field into more of a short-term lifesaver instead of a perpetual annoyance for DPS players. Baptiste's health has also been tuned up with projectile explosions 
oh, Baptiste Healing, sorry, has also been tuned up, with projectile explosions doing less healing with Splash and more healing with Direct Hit. According to developers, this allows Baptiste players to keep their, quote, single target healing effective with a slightly higher skill requirement. So those first two points that I read, obviously that's what Liz is talking about in the second, uh, in her second couple sentences there. Single target healing effective with a slightly higher skill requirement. So it means Baptiste players have to be more, uh, more accurate with their healing, um, the, the healing projectile specifically, obviously. Um, which is interesting because Baptiste has, you know, with his, um, uh, what am I looking for? With his triple shot fire of his uh, primary fire of his rifle. He's always had to be quite accurate um, on the enemies. Uh, however, it, it is very close to pinpoint accuracy. Um, and so he's always been quite effective as uh, at dealing out damage there. But it's kind of nice because this brings the healing more in line with that. Now, the interesting part, obviously, is the immortality field. Because um, in the past, as Liz kind of points out there, the immortality field really could completely change the the flow of a fight um you know especially if it's used in conjunction with either the uh uh the physical space so if you throw it down and it's behind a pillar behind a car i mean that'd be a tall car so maybe a vehicle um or higher up out of view in some way in a hallway that kind of thing um it it obviously uh could really make a huge impact on a team fight now uh because it Kept, sorry, because it kept players with so much health. Now, that health amount is so much less that in a lot of ways, I think what we're going to see is it's going to extend the length of a team fight, but I don't think it'll shift the direction of a team fight quite so much. Um, leaving players, you know, if you leave a player like a Reinhardt with 10% health as opposed to 20% health, that quite literally could be uh, one less swing of his hammer he gets on a DPS player, which could be the difference between axing that DPS player from the fight. So, so that's quite a significant one, and I'm actually really excited to see how Baptiste plays in uh, in the Overwatch League going forward with these changes. I won't be surprised at all if they roll this back in a coming patch. Um, maybe not fully, but I won't be surprised at all if you know maybe they go 15%. Maybe they find this tweaks it a little too far. Um, but in a lot of ways, I also think, you know, and obviously it's not quite to this extent, in a lot of ways, Baptiste right now strikes me similar to Mercy early on in the game where, you know, Mercy had that, that six-man res um, that quite literally was basically like an undo button. Uh, so anyways, that was a lot on the patch notes. Uh, I probably didn't need to go into the patch notes that much. So let's move along here at a nice clip. Now this next story doesn't directly directly relate to the Overwatch League, um, but it is important nonetheless and exciting to see. So this is from Dexerto.com. This is written by Theo Salone, I hope I pronounced that right, on April 23rd, and it reads, Activision Blizzard head of esports, Johanna Ferries named general manager of Call of Duty franchise. So as you can see, tangentially related. After nearly 12 years with the NFL as an executive focused on marketing and club development, Ferries joined Activision as the Call of Duty League's commissioner in August 2018. Then in October 2020, she was promoted to, the, to Activision head of esports, overseeing both the CDL and the Overwatch League. Now, Ferries continues to earn greater responsibilities amidst, amidst Activision's priorities, properties, sorry, being named as COD's general manager on April 23rd, 2021. 
In this role, she will be taking on a more active presence working with the game franchise that she also manages on an eSport level. In a statement to Game Informer's Daniel Tack, Fairies elaborated on her motivations for COD moving forward. Quote, I can't wait to help usher the franchise to its next chapter and to continue to unlock the power that Call of Duty holds for the future of competitive entertainment. Following mentions of possible integration bet between COD's Battle Royale Warzone and the CDL's competitive structure, this new role bears interesting potential, potential for the game's future. Many have beckoned for stronger ties between COD and its esports scene, so at face value, this may be a step in that synchronized direction. So anyways, I wanted to highlight this one because, first of all, congratulations to Johanna Ferries. Obviously, uh, everything I've read online is that uh, this is well-deserved and well-earned. Um, and it's an interesting progress progression from her for her, you know, going from the NFL to Activision, whatever. I'm not going to talk too much about that. But Ferries joined Activision as the Call of Duty League's commissioner in August 2018. So obviously, she got quite familiar with the Call of Duty League. Then in October 2020, she goes to uh, Activision Head of Esports. So obviously, then she has her hands in both CDL and the Overwatch League. Now, to me, this kind of begs a question. Uh, oh, sorry. And then from there, she's now moving on to COD's general manager. Now, to me, this begs the question of did she simply want a more focused role, you know, overseeing both Call of Duty League and Overwatch League? Those are in most ways, I think, well, in some ways, um, Activision Blizzard's, uh, a, a few of their top eSport uh, divisions, departments, whatever you want to call it. Um, so the, the question is, you know, in a lot of ways, was she given a choice? You know, was there an option of, hey, we'd like you to focus on one of these properties further. We'd like you to develop it more. Or was it simply the fact of Activision looked at their two, uh, their two huge esports properties and, or two of their huge esports properties, and they kind of said, uh, you know what, Call of Duty League is the future. Um, I could, in a lot of ways, I don't want to admit it, but I could easily see that being the case. If you obviously look at Call of Duty's uh, history in gaming, as well as their, you know, explosion since I think in a lot of ways, uh, the original Modern Warfare, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 4, um, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, I should say, it does scream to me that, uh, that Call of Duty is the way of the future. Um, now, does that mean that Overwatch League doesn't have a future? No, I definitely don't think so. Obviously, we know we have Overwatch 2 coming out. We know that will have a direct impact and ties to the Overwatch League. But ultimately, the future of Overwatch is a lot less clear than the future of Call of Duty. And at the same time, I mean, if you if you simply look at the growth Call of Duty has had, especially since the release of Warzone, um, I, there's there's a significant difference in the two properties right now. And I can only imagine they really want to focus on growing the Call of Duty League, where the Overwatch League is much less of a priority at this point, or Overwatch in general. Now, that sounds very doom and gloom. It's not meant to. It's simply the fact that they know what they have with Call of Duty. Call of Duty is huge. Um, it's one of the largest gaming properties at this point, and they obviously want to grow that. It is also a yearly franchise um, or an annual franchise where they have a new installment every November, I believe, is typically the cycle, um, right around November 11th kind of thing, Remembrance Day up here in Canada. So interesting. Nonetheless, I suspect Activision probably in some ways knows what they're doing in this sense. 
I suspect that they probably have a, a path and a chart for when things kind of, or when focus shifts to the Overwatch League and Overwatch again with Overwatch 2 coming out, uh, they, they probably know what they're doing. I say probably, because they are a mega corporation. We all know how out of touch those can often be. So I digress. Let's move on. Next article. Uh, a One that I want to say is kind of funny, but in a very real sense, not funny at all. Uh, you'll understand what I mean in a second here. This is coming from Jinx.tv, written by Andres Aguino on April 26th. Overwatch Pro Dante rushed to hospital after testicular torsion. Surgery successful. The Houston Outlaws DPS revealed that he had to undergo surgery due to testicular torsion, making him miss the match against the London Spitfire. After the Houston Outlaws announced that star DPS Dante Cruz would miss the match against London Spitfire in week two of the Overwatch League 2021 due to illness, fans speculated about the nature of his ailment. As it turns out, it wasn't COVID-related, but rather a case of testicular torsion, which occurs when a testicle rotates, twisting the spermatic cord that brings blood to the scrotum, Dante revealed via Twitter. The 22-year-old explained on the 25th of April he noticed parts of his testicles swollen while preparing for the match against the London Spitfire. Quote, I ended up getting to the office fine, but I was still in a lot of pain after I went to the bathroom. I was also a lot more swollen than I was when I left my house. General manager and former Outlaws player Matt Coolmat Iorio, alongside coach Harsha Bandai, rushed Dante to the hospital, where despite a painful pre-surgery, everything went, turned out fine, just fine, according to Cruz. Sorry about that. Quote, we caught it early enough so I don't have any sort of damage down there. I forgot what it was called, but they did some stuff during the surgery to make sure this never happens again, he pointed out. The Houston Outlaws are currently 4-0 in the current Owl season and are leading the North American region ahead of the May Melee qualifiers. So, yeah, a very real... Uh, story there, a very painful and cringeworthy story there. Um, all, all I'm really going to say is we're glad that Dante is feeling better. Uh, good job to the doctors and surgeons that operated on him. And fellas, if you notice anything awry down there, go to a doctor. Go to the ER. Don't don't delay. Moving on from there, we have a an interesting article here that comes hot off the heels of... The Hangzhou Spark uh, having a record of 0-2 and two for their uh, two games played so far. And this is written by Xavier Johnson over on .esports.com, April 26th. Hangzhou Spark parts ways with Pajon. Pajon. Pajon? I'm going to go Pajon. Andante becomes interim head coach. I, I do, like, know how to say these, these names before I read them. And then when I'm talking and I read them, it's just like it never comes out right. Anyways, the Hangzhou Spark is moving on from former head coach Paijan and assistant coach Noru amid a, an 0-2 start in the 2021 Overwatch League season the team announced today. Andante will be stepping into the role of interim head coach and mentalist will join the team as assistant coach. The move comes in the wake of a winless debut in the May Melee qualifiers this past weekend. The Spark lost to both Philadelphia Fusion and New York Excelsior in 3-1 contests. This is the team's first 0-2 start in the Overwatch League. Pajon joined the Spark following the Vancouver Titans' collapse in Season 3, leading to players and staff leaving the team and finding new homes, as we all know. Both Pajon and Andante were on the Titans coaching staff during the team's remarkable second season. The pair helped lead the team to a 25-3 record and a grand finals appearance. 
Andante now takes the head coaching position, looking to right the ship next week after a shaky start. He's joined by Mentalist, who comes to the team from the Sparks Academy squad, Billy Billy Gaming. Mentalist led Billy Billy, sorry, Billy Billy Gaming to a Contenders 2021 CN start, uh, CN season one regular season first place finish. Mentalist also was a coach with the Atlanta Reign in the 2020 season. The Spark underwent extensive changes in the offseason, adding six new players for a full 12-person roster, one of only two in the Overwatch League. Of the new additions, rookie flex support MCD is is a standout player on the roster, bringing consistency to the position next to veteran main support IDK. This week, the Spark take on the Shanghai Dragons on Friday, April 30th, and the Guangzhou Charge on Saturday, May 1st. So, an interesting one there. Obviously, I, I... wanted to highlight this one because that's a pretty major change especially after only you know two games but when the league this year is or the season this year is as short as it is every game truly counts and uh as we know uh if we are a vancouver titans fan then you are quickly eliminated from contention for uh one of these uh stage tournaments um which as i mentioned the vancouver titans are not going to be competing for the may melee tournament um, also, I wanted to highlight this, obviously, because Pajon and uh, Andante, obviously, coming from the, Vancouver, the former Vancouver Titans before everything imploded there. So looking at that schedule, Shanghai Dragons on Friday, April 30th, I mean, hey, anything can happen. Shanghai Dragons don't seem to be the Shanghai Dragons we're used to. However, won't surprise me at all if uh, Hangzhou gets stomped there. And then taking on the Guangzhou charge uh, after that, you know, not not nearly as uh, tough a a matchup as the Shanghai Dragons would seem. And looking at the standings, I mean, Hangzhou is in 15th, Guangzhou is in 17th. Both have a record of 0-2. Hangzhou is only in the lead because of their map differential, which is a negative 3 right now, where Guangzhou has a negative 6. So, you know, they could stand a chance of going, I would say, probably 1-2 and two, uh, in this upcoming week's games. So... Now, that brings us to the end of the news section of our show. Obviously, I talked quite a bit more than I expected to on uh, some of those stories. So we're going to move right on into the Owl Recap. There's no stopping me. All right. So here in the Owl Recap, we are now going to take a look at last week's games. And uh, I'll just give a quick overview of the scores for most of them. Uh, some of the matches, however, I will talk just a little bit more about if, uh, you know, if I'm a fan of the, the teams, the, the match, or anything like that, um, or if I feel like it, really. So let's take a look. So back on Friday, April 23rd, we saw the first couple matches of the weekend with the Paris Eternal uh, playing for the first time against the Vancouver Titans, the first time this season. And then after that, we saw the Los Angeles Gladiators take on the London Spitfire playing for their first time this season. So first, Paris Eternal versus Vancouver. The Paris Eternal came out on top with a record of 3-1. to one. Now, when I first started this match, obviously it was a Friday, it was the middle of the day, I was working. So I didn't get to watch it nearly as closely as I would have liked. In fact, I think I had a meeting halfway through this match, so I had to kind of stop watching. But the first map of the game went 2-0 and to the Vancouver Titans. This was, of course, the control map. And I did watch much of this map, and I really thought, hey the Vancouver Titans might have something going here. Maybe they're not the bottom team that everyone had thought they were. I was very much thinking, hmm, maybe they're more like a 17th place team? 
maybe a 16th place team, uh, you know, maybe if they're lucky somewhere like 15, which would in a lot of ways, I think, defy expectations. I think a lot of people put Vancouver at the bottom of their power rankings, um, maybe only above the Los Angeles Valiant over in the Eastern region. So in my mind, seeing this map, I was kind of thinking, okay, if Vancouver's in 16th, maybe we put Paris and uh, London below them. Maybe we put the Los Angeles Valiant below that. Maybe one more team ends up back there. Uh, or, you know, put them in a 17th kind of position. So anyways, I thought things were looking good. Moving on from there, I, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I had a meeting. I had the game on in the background. I kind of kept peeking over and seeing what was going on. And it seemed largely from there like Vancouver had a bit of a meltdown. Um, actually, that's not even true. I should give credit to Paris. Uh, if I recall correctly, it largely actually seemed like Paris had a few players in particular who started to kind of pop off and really step up. Um, Elivote being one of them on the... No, sorry. Uh, Onigod being one of them on the DPS role. And um, in a lot of ways, I definitely also thought uh, that... there. I thought there was someone else. I'm just looking at their roster right now. Maybe it was mostly Onigod. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that for now. Um, from what I saw, I definitely thought that Onigod really kind of stepped it up from there, and he was making some big plays that I think in a lot of ways were, were, were I don't want to say carrying Paris because obviously it is a largely a team effort, but he was the one that I think most people identified was kind of killing the game and really keeping the pressure on Vancouver. Um, obviously, there was a Hanamura map on map three where it went six to five for Paris. So Vancouver certainly didn't fall over on that map. Uh, they definitely held their own. And if I recall correctly, they actually had some really good defensive stands, uh, but ultimately they just couldn't make it happen. And that's how Paris came away with the win, uh, you know, much to Vancouver's chagrin. Moving on from there, the Los Angeles Gladiators obviously took on the London Spitfire, and the Gladiators came out on top 3-0. and uh, London looked largely out of touch with the game. Um, you know, they had more than a few players who didn't quite seem to have a good grasp on, on how to come out on top against this Gladiators team. And in a lot of ways, I think this might have been a bit of the confidence boost that the Los Angeles Gladiators needed. Moving on from there, Saturday's games. We saw the Chengdu Hunters play the New York Excelsior, the new New York Excelsior for the first time this season. And they came, Chengdu came out on top 3-0. and uh, The New York Scrimbucks plummeted, uh, plummeted down there um, after that match. And people started to realize that, hey, maybe New York isn't what they, uh, they had been rumored to be from the Scrimbucks exchange. Moving on from there, the Philadelphia Fusion came out on top of the Hangzhou Spark 3-1. And then we moved over to the North American Games on Saturday, April 24th. First, we saw the Houston Outlaws take on the Paris Eternal in their second match of the weekend. And this time, it went the other way in favor of Houston, coming out 3-1. to one. So, good job, for sure, uh, with Paris taking a map off of Houston. Um, in a lot of ways, kind of hard to say what exactly happened there. I'm just looking at the map breakdown, and it was Havana that went to Paris, and it was a 5-4 match, so ultimately both teams managed to push it the whole way. Um, you know, I, I don't think I watched that match, actually, um, so I can't comment on it too much. Moving on from there, second game, nope, uh, yeah, second game in the uh, West region was the Boston Uprising 
against the Los Angeles Gladiators. And again, Los Angeles Gladiators coming out on top 3-0. Again, a good weekend for the Gladiators. They now have a record of 2-2 two two after disappointing losses in the first week. However, ultimately, I think a disappointing showing from the Boston Uprising. Um, this was their first game of the season, and ultimately, I didn't think they looked bad. Obviously, they got 3-0, and um, but I do think there were some questionable decisions around, uh, around some of the players that were played, um, around just around the team kind of cohesion as a whole. Um, but ultimately, you know, first, first game of the weekend, first game of the season, who knows, maybe on Sunday, they, they picked it up. Although arguably they had just as tough an opponent in the Dallas fuel, but we'll get to that match in a second. Moving on from there, the much anticipated debut of the newly built Washington justice, uh, came also on Saturday as your final Saturday game. And ultimately the justice came out on top three to one against the Dallas fuel. Um, Justice having a quite a good showing, you know, taking control 2-0, um, taking Hanamura 2-1, and Eichenwald 4-3. Um, ultimately, Justice seeming like they might just be the uh, the promised child that everyone thought they would be. They might just be the top three team that, uh, you know, a lot of people had them placing right now. So we'll see what happens there. Moving on from there, Sunday, April 25th. The Hangzhou Spark first took on the New York Excelsior, and this time around, New York came out on top, 3-1. to one. So, good for New York, great job for them. Uh, this could also largely play into why the Hangzhou Spark have uh, had that news story that we talked about with Andante and Pajon, or Pajon and Andante, really. Um, you know, the Hangzhou Spark, not, in my mind, a team that uh, should have been beaten by a rookie squad like New York. Now, obviously, New York isn't entirely a rookie squad, Um you know, they, they do still have some veteran players in Jonak, um, obviously some, you know, players who have been in the league for a little while, uh, in Bianca, in Ivy, coming from the, the Philadelphia Fusion of last year, um, as well as, you know, Yakpung even. But a couple newbies, you know, Friday, Flora, um, I think that might be just about everyone who played. Oh, Guangboom was also in there. Um, I think that's probably it. But ultimately... In my mind, the Hangzhou, Hangzhou Spark should not have uh, taken that loss, so maybe that's what resulted in the uh, coaching change that we have now seen. Moving on from there, the next Eastern Region game saw the much-anticipated Philadelphia Fusion on top, taking on the also-on-top Chengdu Hunters and ultimately besting them, uh, Philadelphia besting the Chengdu Hunters with a record of 3-1. to one. So it started with uh, Ilios and Philly took it 2-1. to one. So, you know, good job Chengdu taking it to 3. Uh, then we went to Havana where Philadelphia brought it 1-0. and oh. uh, And then on Volskaya, Chengdu came back with a 3-2 to two win. And finally we went to King's Row where Philadelphia took it 3-2. to two. So I actually did not go back and watch this one. It wasn't the uh, Encore game. I believe the Encore game was Philadelphia against, against Hangzhou, which going forward, I don't think that will be the case. If Philadelphia and Chengdu play each other again, I would assume those will that will definitely be the Encore if, if Chengdu and Philadelphia can both keep up the records and, and the amazing play that they have been, uh, that they've been demonstrating so far. But ultimately, this is the match that put Philadelphia at the top of the league with a record of four wins and zero losses, losses and a nine-map differential. So there you have it. Moving on from there, we 
are still on Sunday, of course, for the first of the uh, Western Region games where we saw the Houston Outlaws take on the London Spitfire. And this was, but for all intents and purposes, an easy 3-0 for Houston. We then saw the Dallas Fuel take on the Boston Uprising, which, as I talked about last week, there was potential for this to be an interesting match. You know, Dallas having a few tough matches prior. Uh, ultimately, Dallas wound up on the bottom of a, or on the top, sorry, of a 3-0 matchup with Boston coming out with their second loss of the weekend. Moving right along from there, we then had the final match of the weekend, which was the Washington Justice playing their second game of the weekend against a not-so-formidable foe, the Vancouver Titans, and taking it, Washington taking it 3-1. to one. However, I would like to highlight the Temple of Anubis map, where Vancouver actually took it 3-2. to two. So, overall, some interesting stuff here. You know, Sunday was, in a lot of ways, kind of a boring day. Uh, maybe the first kind of more boring day that we've had. Um, obviously, Houston 3-0, and then Dallas 3-0, and then Washington 3-1. So, not the most exciting day. Um, but, nonetheless, nice to see London play again. Nice to see Boston play again. Nice to see Washington play again. Um, but, ultimately, not the, not the strongest matchups. So... So that's what the previous week looked like. Um, ultimately, some takeaways from that week in my mind are that a you know yes, Vancouver has a record of zero and four. They are the only team to have that record right now, so they're at the bottom of the bottom. However, ultimately, I think there were some positives to pull out from Vancouver. The fact that they were able to take maps off of some off of a top team like Washington does bode well for them, and in my mind, also says that you know power ranking rankings wise unless london can do something impressive in their upcoming games um vancouver should sit ahead of london um you know london got three and by the los angeles gladiators london got three and by the houston outlaws um do we think that vancouver would stand much more of a chance against those teams probably not but maybe against the gladiators they'd take a map um, you know, it would be really impressive, honestly, if uh, if the Vancouver Titans could take a map off of Houston. But as we know from Saturday's games, Paris was able to do that. So, you know, interesting stuff there. Um, Paris, ultimately, Paris would be harder to judge if they should be higher than or lower than the Vancouver Titans. But once once London and Paris get a couple more matches in, as well as Boston, actually, because Boston is also sitting at a record of 0-2 we will have a better idea of where the Vancouver Titans truly sit. Now, that's all we have to recap for the previous week's games. However, we're now going to jump over and take a look at the power rankings with IBM's Watson. I should really have a nice jingle there, but I'm actually running out of uh, sound clips for, for, for me to use of Winston. So I'm just going to jump over to there. Let's hop over to my next tab and over on the power rankings with Watson this is now a fully completed list as every team has played at least two games this season if I'm not mistaken and again as I've talked about before uh, the the way the power rankings with Watson work is that they are largely uh, data driven they are entirely data driven I should say so the more games are played the more players are played the more minutes they play the more stats Watson has to analyze the more, in theory, accurate these rankings should become. So I talked about this last week, um, but let's let's take a look at where some players have uh, or rank now. Um, 
and uh, as well as the teams. So overall, our top five players look like this. Piggy with the Houston Outlaws. Alarm with the Philadelphia Fusion. Happy with the Houston Outlaws. Crimzo with the Houston Outlaws. Jangu with the Houston Outlaws. And I'm going to read one more, making it six. Juby also with the Houston Outlaws. So that's your top six overall ranked players by IBM Watson. Now, Piggy has moved up. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is how many places they moved on the rankings overall. I could be incorrect there but I'm going to read it as that. So Piggy in the first spot has moved up 19 places. Alarm, 8. Happy, 12. Crimzo, 14. Jangu, 16. And Juby, 17. So obviously, if we look at the standings overall, the Houston Outlaws are only in second place behind the Philadelphia Fusion because they have a plus 7 map differential, whereas Philly has a plus 9. Uh, so both teams sitting with a nice 4-0 right now, and that is largely why we see so many of the Houston Outlaws players sitting uh, in the top overall rankings there. Obviously, one of the Philadelphia Fusion, Alarm, ranking number two. Switching over to Support, we see the top five looking like this. Alarm with the Philadelphia Fusion, Crimzo with the Houston Outlaws, Juby with the Houston Outlaws, Toby, who is currently playing for the Philadelphia Fusion, and Gangnam Jin with the Florida Mayhem sitting in the fifth place. So this one, uh, interesting because Gangnam Jin is still up there and uh, they obviously, uh, Florida Mayhem didn't obviously play this past weekend. Um, and then Toby also creeping in there from the, uh, from the Philadelphia Fusion along with Alarm in the first place position. And then number two and three being uh, Houston Outlaws with Crimzo and Juby. So interesting support lineup there and quite the shuffle from what we've seen previously. Moving on from there, and the damage players. Number one, we have Happy. Number two, we have Rascal. Number three, we have Carpe. Number four is Jinmu. And number five is Leave. So a little bit of shifting there. We obviously see some Chengdu hunters dropping down a few positions in Jinmu and Leave. We see Carpe and Rascal climbing the charts on the uh, Philadelphia Fusion side. And of course, we see the man, the myth, the legend, Happy, jumping up to the top position, uh, moving up three places on the Houston Outlaws. Sorry, I had to take a sip of some water there. So Happy is kind of the uh, standout star there. I think uh, right now, and if he can keep up his performance, definitely a candidate for Rookie of the Year this, uh, this season. So moving on from there, let's go to the tank rankings, where we see Piggy in the number one position, Jangu in the number second, number two position, both with the Houston Outlaws. We then see Mono in the number three position and Hotba in the number four position. Of course, both players currently playing for the Philadelphia Fusion, filling in for players that could not get their visas to come over to the um, uh, the Eastern region. And then number five being Gaga with the Chengdu Hunters. Gaga and uh, number six is actually Elsa as well. Gaga and Elsa both dropping quite a bit because obviously they had that loss against the Philadelphia Fusion. Mano and Hotba climbing because of the win with Philadelphia Fusion, but ultimately the Houston Outlaws dominating the charts these days in the number one and two positions. So that is what that looks like. Now we're going to scroll on down. So they, it's really interesting because uh, because we've now seen all these teams play, the overall player rankings is much more filled out. There's uh, a list of, I'm just scrolling to the bottom here. It actually is a list of 100 players um, and where they rank. And it's almost entirely based on, you know, all the players that have played. So uh, really interesting there. But moving on to the team rankings here, we have a full 20 slotted in here. And of course, no surprise here, number one and two positions are filled by the Houston Outlaws and the Philadelphia Fusion, respectively. 
Now, slightly interesting that the Philadelphia Fusion are actually in the number two position with Houston in the number one position where Philadelphia overall in the actual standings is currently in first and Houston is in second, Philly having the better map differential. So I'm not too sure why that is the case. Um, there is more I could read about here with IBM's Watson, but I'm not going to cover that because I just don't feel like it. Chengdu Hunters dropping to number three, dropping down two spots from the first place position because of their loss against the Philadelphia Fusion. The Washington Justice, a new entry on the board, obviously having played their first two games of the season, but having won both of those games. And then number five being the Florida Mayhem, dropping three positions, um, again, simply because of the shuffle in the top three, as well as the Washington Justice entering the board. Now, from there, uh, number six is the Toronto Defiant, which I'd like to highlight because go Toronto. And uh, yeah, from there, you know, some interesting stuff. Uh, we've got the San Francisco Shock sitting in ninth place, down two positions. Uh, we've got the Shanghai Dragons sitting in 12th dropping three positions, um, and then down at the bottom, bottom three being the Boston Uprising, the Guangzhou Charge, and the London Spitfire, respectively. So interesting stuff there. That's what Watson is telling us now. Um, we will see how things change next week. Now, let's take a look at the upcoming games for week three of the Overwatch League season 2021. All right, we're going to jump over to the schedule here, and we're going to switch over to week three. And, ooh, we're going to pull up my pickums. I forgot about my pickums. Let's do my pickums. Pick'em, 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 pick'em. By the way, I have 48 points on my pickums right now. I'm doing pretty bad, but let's see what's going on here. Okay, Thursday, wait, Thursday? Wait, Thursday? Do we have games on Thursday this week? <gasps> Oh my god, I'm so excited. <coughs> Pardon me. I did not realize we had games on Thursday, and uh, <laughs> I did not plan my week according to that. Normally, I will legitimately book meetings around this stuff so that I can watch as much as possible. Obviously, it doesn't always pan out, as I talked about with the Vancouver game last week. But I did not realize we had two games this week on Thursday. So, anyways, April 29th, we have a game at 1 p.m. Mountain Time and a game at 2.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Yay! Woo! Woo! Okay. So, our first match of the week on Thursday, April 29th, is the Paris Eternal facing off against the Atlanta Reign. Now, this will be Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken, returning to play after a week off. Yep, they're sitting at a record of 0-2. Zero 0-2, and two. Zero and two, is that true? 0? Yep, 0-2. and two. Okay, after a loss against the Toronto Defiant. And who else did they play? Uh, the Toronto Defiant, and the Florida Mayhem, as they should have lost, uh, because I like both of those teams. So I'm gonna, I am going to give that one to the Atlanta Reign. I'm going to say they're going to win it 3-2. Paris, Paris, Paris. I know, obviously, Paris beat Vancouver 3-1. I don't put much stock in that. Uh, they did take a map off Houston, even though Houston won 3-1. So I think I'm going to give them a map against the Atlanta Reign. The real question is, can they get two off the Atlanta Reign? But I do ultimately think Atlanta will win. So then our next game on, on Thursday is the Washington Justice playing against the Boston Uprising. Now, Washington and Boston, I just want to take a look at the previous week. Obviously, we know Washington beat Vancouver 3-1. to Washington also beat Dallas 3-1. to 
Um, so it's definitely going to go the way of Washington, given that Boston lost both their matches, and Boston didn't take a map off of Dallas. So ultimately, I'm going to say Washington 3-0 is this seals the deal quickly. Moving on from there, we got a double points matchup in the Pickums League on Friday, April 30th in the Boston Uprising against the London Spitfire. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Okay, okay. I like where this is going. I like where this is going. Boston Uprising 0-2, London Spitfire 0-2. They actually both have the exact same record. They're also tied with the Guangzhou Charge uh, for that record as well. Uh, minus six map differential and 0-2 and records. So let's think about this. Boston uh, basically pooping the bed 0-3 to against the Los Angeles Gladiators as well as the Dallas Fuel. Uh, we then go to the London Spitfire, who are also a record of 0-2 with the exact same scores against the Los Angeles Gladiators and the Houston Outlaws. Man, this could, <laughs> this could actually be a really good match. Um, the London Spitfire being the the rookies from European contenders, and the Boston Uprising being the you know the underdog bottom of the barrel team from the past couple of seasons. I think I'm gonna go with my heart here. I'm gonna give it to Boston. I'm gonna say they come out on top with the three. What does London do though? London, I really, honestly, I was not impressed with London. Um, I think they looked. I don't know if it was nerves. I don't know what it was. I think they looked pretty shaky, and especially some of their tank play I did not think was very good at all. Do they get any maps against Boston? You know what? I want to say it's going to be a really interesting match. Give the give it a 3-2 to two for, for Boston on top. Uh... But ultimately, every time I follow my heart with these goddamn pickums, I tank the ratings. So I'm going to say they get one map off Boston, and it's going to be a 3-1 to one matchup. I might go back in and change that. We'll see. I might bump it up to 3-2. to two, But anyways, that's what I'm going to put it. Now, after that, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Oh my gosh, this is such an exciting week. Um, now, of course, this goes by region, so we're going to jump to Friday's games uh, in the western region. Oh, man, I'm tired. It's getting late here. It's almost 1 in the morning as I'm recording. Oh, the next matchup, though, is the San Francisco Shock against the Florida Mayhem. <laughs> God, this is exciting. Uh, San Francisco obviously sitting at a 1-1 one one record. Florida sitting at a 2-0. and oh, But ultimately, San Francisco... Ah, oof. I think I still got to give the edge to San Francisco. I don't. I don't think they're boomed or anything like that. The real question now is it a three to two or is it three to one? As much as I want it to be a three to two because I want Florida to be competitive and I want to see them tighten some of those screws that looked a little loose the last time around, I'm gonna give it to San Francisco three to one, which is unfortunate, but that's what I'm gonna do. Now, moving on from there, we have oh ooh, uh, damn, Friday has some good games. Uh oh man. All right, next match is Toronto against the Washington Justice. I think I have to give it to the Justice. Their play looked a lot cleaner than Toronto's. As high as I am on Toronto, uh, Toronto and Florida, I felt, were 
very, very evenly matched. They didn't play each other, but I really felt they both had a lot of the, a lot of similar pangs of greatness, but at the same time, it looked like they were missing a lot of that synergy that they really need. Um, I think if, if Florida and Toronto can both tighten the screws and really uh, find some cohesion among their team members and, and make it work, then I think they can both really be dominant forces this season. Uh, whereas I think you see a team like Houston and uh, Philadelphia, even Chengdu, already showing that. Um, and that's kind of the difference maker. Now, that's not to say Florida and Toronto can't do it. You know, Toronto in particular, I think, has the coaching staff uh, leading them with KDG um, at the at the helm that, that definitely could see results. Um, in a lot of ways, I mean, I talked before being impressed with Neist. Um, so... You know, there is that. Oof. I think I'm going to give it to Washington 3-1. to one. And the simple fact of, I think Toronto having that week off, and yes, they will have, uh, you know, footage, uh, obviously, of, of the games that Washington has played to review. I think Washington will also have that footage of Toronto to review. And I think Washington might just be a little bit stronger at identifying those weaknesses that Toronto has and uh, taking advantage of them. So, giving it to Washington 3-1. to one. Moving on from there, Saturday, we then have the Florida Mayhem taking on the Paris Eternal. I'm giving it to Florida 3. Ooh, I'm going to give it to Florida with a 3-0 and because although I said that the Atlanta, that Paris will take a map off Atlanta, um, that's mostly because I don't think Atlanta is that impressive, and I think that Florida ranks higher than Atlanta, so I'm going to give it to them 3-0. Moving on from there, Toronto Defiant played the London Spitfire. I'm going to do the exact same thing I just did with the Florida against Paris, and I'm going to give Toronto the 3-0 against London, and I'm not even going to question that. Then the San Francisco Shock take on the Atlanta Reign, and uh, oof, is it going to be another 3-0? Oof, I'm going to give it another 3-0. I think Saturday is going to be a day of 3-0s when it comes to the Western region, so there you have it. I'm going to save those predictions. Oh, do I got to click it again? Nope, there it goes. Okay. We are good to go. Moving on to the East region. The first games are on Friday, April 30th. We have the Los Angeles Gladiators against the Guangzhou Charge, which is interesting. Uh, both sitting at a record of 0-2 and two right now. LA technically sitting ahead of Guangzhou because of a negative 5 map differential instead of a negative 6. Um, ugh, that's a toss-up. I don't freaking know what I want to do there. I'm going to give it to Guangzhou 3-2, to two, just because. That's kind of a coin toss for me. Next up, we have the Seoul Dynasty with a 1-1 one one record, taking on the New York Excelsior with also a 1-1 one one record. Both teams have played two matches. Seoul sitting ahead of New York a couple spots because of their plus one map uh, diff, and New York with a minus one. This one will be a scrimbucks kind of match. Um... I personally like the Seoul Dynasty better than the New York Excelsior, but I'm going to give it to New York, and I'm going to say it's a three. Kind of depends on which Seoul shows up to this game. You know, if they want to fight, they could bring it three to two. They could even win. I'm going to give it three and one, honestly. Moving on from there, the Shanghai Dragons take on the Hangzhou Spark. I am going to lean towards Shanghai. I'm going to give it to them three and oh. I think Shanghai comes back with a vengeance. Moving on to Saturday, we then have the Seoul Dynasty taking on the Los Angeles Valiant. I am going to say Seoul shows up, takes it 3-2-1. I think Los Angeles is going to get a map off them. 
Moving on from there, Guangzhou Charge takes on the Hangzhou Spark. And I really have no say in this match, no strong feelings. I'm going to give it to... Since I have Guangzhou winning the night before and Hangzhou not, I'm going to give it to Guangzhou with a 3-2. to two. Yeah, I'm just totally guessing on that. And then finally, we have the Shanghai Dragons taking on the New York Excelsior. Um, I do think experience will prevail. I think, like I say, I think I'm going to put my money on Shanghai and say Shanghai is back. I think they're going to take it 3-1. to one. And we're going to save those predictions as well. And then we're going to move on to the knockout sunday so oh pick two teams from each region to advance to the may melee oh wow okay this is interesting oh this is exciting okay so all of those matches prior to sunday's matches were simply um i guess uh the the final of the sort of seating qualifying matches so after that we then go to pick two teams from each region to advance to the may melee tournament <laughs> god this is so exciting i love this and because of this all of sunday's matches are uh, tbd so that's why you pick two you don't actually get to do anything here uh just yet anyways so in the west region who is going to advance uh it's definitely going to be houston that's for sure um as much as i want to say san francisco at this point, I'm not really thinking it's going to be San Francisco. Uh, that's really interesting, actually. Like, my gut wants to go with San Francisco, but my my head is telling me it's Washington. Oh, man. Well, let's let's look back up here. Let's see. San Francisco, I have them beating the Mayhem 3-1. to one. I have San Francisco beating the Rain 3-0. to zero. The Washington also getting a 3-0. to but then I have them, oh, I have both teams getting the exact same score over this past weekend, which would technically still put Washington above San Francisco. So I, I guess I got to go Washington. That that kind of hurts, but that's where my heart is. On the eastern side, uh, Chengdu and Philadelphia, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. Um, you know, again, even if Shanghai comes out on top of both their games, 3-0, 3-1, uh, I just think that right now Philly and Chengdu are looking like the top dogs. Unless Chengdu pulls a Chengdu bob and, and they really, you know, flub, Chengdu is the one that I could see dropping out and Shanghai stepping up. But really, honestly, your knockout Sunday predictions cannot be modified. Are you sure? Oh, goodness gracious. Okay, I'm not going to save those because I wonder if we'll be able to change that after Friday or Saturday's games. So anyways, that's what we're looking at right now. That's my predictions for next week. What an exciting weekend. I had no idea we had Friday and or Thursday games. I knew we had Friday games. I had no idea we had uh, those other games there coming up on Thursday. So anyways, that'll do it for your predictions for next week. This week, I should say. And with that, that actually takes us to the end of episode 38 of One Man Watchpoint and Overwatch podcast. I honestly, I had forgotten how long these episodes become as soon as I have, uh, as soon as I recap the games and talk about uh, the next week's games. And now that we got the pickums, ooh, I'm excited. I'm enjoying this. This is a lot of fun. So this was One Man Watchpoint episode 38. I am, of course, your host at Sir Dr. JM. That's at Sir D R 
jm. You can find me on Twitter and follow me there. Reach out to me, interact with me, whatever you want to do. Uh, send me questions, send me concerns, send me whatever you want about the show, about uh, the Overwatch League, about Overwatch in general. And I'm happy to talk about that. And of course, I'll, I'll shout you out on the show as well. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast services out there. Apple Podcasts. Uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you have a service that you can't find this on, well, I don't know how you're listening to this, but let me know and I'll uh, try to alleviate that pain. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, as always. And, uh, you know, like, share, subscribe, whatever, all that jazz, um, because I love to interact with you. I've started to interact more on uh, a few Discord channels that I am a part of, um, you know, trying to just get myself out there and be a little more forward-facing. So hopefully that helps with building things out. But I digress. Shoot me a follow, shoot me a message, and we will chat. Thanks again for listening to One Man Watchpoint, and we will catch you next week for the next episode 39 thank you